Season one of Let's Bond is available across multiple streaming platforms, so I encourage you to go back and have a listen because we have had some outstanding guests, and maybe even give us a review and share with a couple of people in your network. So let's get started with today's episode. Today we're talking about surety and bonding, and I have some fantastic and very knowledgeable guests with us today. My good friend, Tim Laurent, who is the National Director of Indigenous Strategies for Shondo's Construction. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, Jody. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. And I'm also joined today by the FNFA COO, Steve Berna, calling in from the West Bank First Nation. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Jody. It's my pleasure. And I'm very excited to have you both on the call today because we're going to be talking about a really important topic across Indian country today that relates to surety and bonding or lack of surety and bonding access. And Tim, you're coming from a space of construction, but before we get into that, tell us who you are. Where are you calling in from? Where are you from? All right. Thanks, Jody. So, as Judy mentioned, my name is Tim Laurent. I'm the National Director of Indigenous Strategies with Shandos Construction. I am calling from the uh, traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Our office is located uh, on their traditional territory, so it's an honor for us to be to be working from their area. The role I play at Shandos is um, I lead and I created and, and lead our Indigenous strategy across Canada. Shandos is a, a general contractor. Uh, we have about 750 employees. Uh, in seven districts across uh, Canada. So my role is to support our teams with Indigenous cultural awareness training. I've got a key requirement of increasing our Indigenous talent within the organization. Also ensuring that of all our projects we have ongoing, that Indigenous procurement becomes a priority. Too often our Indigenous communities have never been invited to the table. So we, I want to create that opportunity on each of our projects across Canada. And lastly, I, I have an, uh, an area where I just call business development, and that's um, working with our districts and our district managers, our business development directors, and getting to know the communities in their marketplace and building relationships uh, with them. So West Bank, Steve, uh, we have an office in Kelowna, so I would want to encourage them to, to meet with the folks um, from West Bank Nation and the nations in the Okanagan Valley. So, And the idea really is to bring the Indigenous perspective to the forefront. So it's interesting now that I've been in this role for two and a half years, I'm getting involved in consultation, customer engagement. So there's a lot of different things that deal with the role. So excited to be here. Great. That's fantastic, Tim. And after two and a half years, tell me about some of the challenges that you're seeing. You mentioned procurement, which yeah. is great. And we know that the federal government has created a target of 5% procurement for its contracts for Indigenous nations. Let's talk about some of the challenges that might occur with that. So it's great that they're setting this target, yep. yet we still have a bonding challenge that's um, facing our First Nation contractors. Yes, exactly. And maybe what I should do is just to back up a step is I can also say that prior to this, I was in the financial services industry with Indigenous banking, with TD Bank. And um, so I'm familiar with uh, commercial banking, investments and trusts and so on. I've done a lot of work in that area. So from the banking side, I certainly got involved with uh, issues of uh, bonding and performance bonds and letters of credit and so on. 
The challenge from the procurement side, obviously, is getting out to the communities and out to the nations and getting them involved in the process. Too often, I think it really starts with with the whole concept of UNDRIP and and consultation as projects are being developed in the traditional territory of of our nations. There's a, there's a law now that requires consultation and involvement and engagement. So in the past, I think what has happened is a lot of the not necessarily general contractors, but the clients we work for had never considered that. And as UNDRIP becomes law across Canada, it's important now for uh, any development to be going through the process of a duty to consult. And that's working with the traditional territory, the treaty area where you're, where you're developing this project and making sure you're reaching out and having those early consultation processes, discussions, I guess, really with the, with the nations in the territory. In, in some cases, it could be with the treaty or a tribal council. In some cases, it could be directly with the nation. So what my role in, and what I've been doing with, the, with that side of the, the procurement and also the consultation is as new projects are awarded to Shandos, if I'm not involved in the interview stage or the proposal writing stage, I want to make sure that the client that we are working with has an Indigenous engagement strategy to make sure that they've reached out to either the, um, the treaty nations, if applicable, or the nations that are in their traditional territory and invite them to the table. Our, our nations have never been invited to participate on these projects. And um, it's new for some of our clients. But I think the good news is that most of the clients I talk to are very open to learning more and very open to being more inclusive and, and including the nation's in their project and having their input as well. So, and that's really important. You make some fantastic points because it's about the invitation, the consultation, equity and parity, which Mm -hmm. doesn't exist in the bonding or the surety world for First Nation contractors. And I want to talk about that and why that's different specifically for First Nation contractors. What are you seeing on your end? Yeah, we had a recent example on Vancouver Island. We were awarding a contract to... um, an economic development corporation owned by one of the nations on the island. And although the nation itself was very financially viable, they had an issue trying to get bonding. And what it comes down to is that the organizations that provide surety bonding or performance bonding or, or letters of credit. So these are a bond really is a contingent liability. And to have access to a contingent liability, you have to go through the credit process. From the bank's perspective, in terms of my past, that involves an application. It, it involves assessing management risk and in, in assessing security. So where, where the challenge comes with the nations is that under the Indian Act, nations, the pledging of security is very difficult because the enforcement of that security in the event of default really doesn't cover the risk of the, of the creditor. And so it's important that we have some kind of mechanism in place that allows nations the same rights, if you like, of non-Indigenous entities to either pledge security uh, from their nation or get into a credit agreement where they can have access to and get approved to a, for a contingent liability, be it a, a performance bond or a bond, or um, with the insurance company, it's more of a surety bond, or even a letter of credit from, from, the, from the banks. So these are all similar instruments that, that uh, nations use. And really what that whole process does is to share risk. The idea is that the general contractor doesn't want to take on all the risk in the event that 
the the contract is not completed as as outlined in the contract and that risk element of having that surety bond is there in the event of default so that that is the challenge and it's it's basically the indian act that that has created that problem right and I know that, uh, you know, Section 89 of the Indian Act, and you had mentioned prevents a third party from seizing assets, and that has come mm-hmm. into play in a number of situations, which really refrains the contractors from executing an enforceable indemnity agreement, mm-hmm. which is therefore the problem. And I know a lot of the projects that exist, whether it's at a federal procurement level or provincial or even municipal areas over a certain amount require bonding as one of the pieces of criteria in order to participate in those those projects. So by not having the bonding or, or um, agreements in place for First Nation contractors, we're eliminating their ability to participate at parity right from the very beginning, which is really unfortunate. And because of this, people are asking, why is FNFA working or looking at this? Well, we know that there's a significant infrastructure gap that exists on uh, First Nations and in our communities right across Canada. And I think today it's been estimated now around $349.2 billion, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. The other piece of that is that we know that there's over $300 billion in assets that now require either remediation or construction. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to be active participants and the construction component or industry in building our nations. So, you know, when we're looking at these types of infrastructure uh, projects, which are quite large and significant, we want to become key players in that. And from a lot of the perspectives of First Nation contractors that we've had discussions with, there is no parity, there is no equality there. There are existing workarounds, but t- what tends to happen, and as you mentioned, is that it comes at a greater cost or a greater risk. And so the FNFA is looking at you know, removing barriers and how do we put our First Nation contractors at par with other Indigenous contractors. And to be clear, we're not asking for special treatment. We're not asking, you know, just because bid bonding or surety may be available doesn't automatically mean that they would get that bid or be awarded that bid. We're just asking again for parity. And so that's going to include having an enforceable or indemnity agreement put into place so that contractors can participate in the economy without losing out. You're right, Jody. It's about leveling the playing field. And it's never been fair for First Nation entities. And, you know, the other part of this, if you if you want to dig a little deeper, is that these infrastructure projects that are available to First Nation communities, what better way to have the community itself control that whole process and have their companies be a part of that construction process where they can employ their own people, they can engage their own businesses in the community, because ultimately, when I talk about my strategy, the, the two long-term goals I'm trying to achieve is to help to create wealth in communities and to, uh, to build capacity. One of the ways you could do that is, is through these infrastructure projects. And how unfortunate it is that you have a project in a community and we need a, um, a construction company from a non-Indigenous from coming outside the community to do the work. Well, while the poor nation is 
to saying, hey, we got people here that can do this and we just don't have um, a level playing field to get access to capital, access to bonding, all the things that are, are challenges that are, are really unfair. Yeah, absolutely. Steve Burnett, from your perspective, what are you seeing as some of the challenges? Jody, just, just to um, make clear, FNFA is a finance authority and we have $2 billion in loans outstanding so far, fully backed by First Nations own source revenues. But it's very clear that own source revenues only go so far to closing the infrastructure gap. If the gap is $349.2 billion, it's not because First Nations own source revenues haven't kept up. It's because Canada's policy of pay as you go or use whatever money's in an annual budget, stop. Use next year's money's in an annual budget has not kept up. We are at the point now where we are pushing a model of Canada to for First Nations chief and councils to determine their community priorities. FNFA under monetization, and there is a podcast on monetization if anybody wants to listen to more on it. FNFA will raise the financing. Canada will make the annual payments. But the question became, who's going to build the infrastructure if monetization occurs? And as... Tim has pointed out, there are barriers that would limit Indigenous contractors participating in the very projects that are benefiting their own communities. More, they would be barriers in place to prevent them from working on projects outside their communities that Canada's RFPs for. So we have pushed a model Canada would back that would allow Indigenous contractors to set up their own authority, manage it, govern it, make policies on it that would level the playing field. And if you do want me to speak more on the details of that, I'd be glad to. So this, this authority, and it would be a standalone authority that we are also representing a model to Canada, would have a certain amount of monies in a pool. And where the barriers under the Indian Act prevent Indigenous contractors from getting fair pricing on surety bonds, they would be able to be, on a voluntary basis, a member of this new authority. And once a member of the new authority, they could then tap into this large pool of cash. And that large pool of cash would then act as the backstop for their applications to get a surety insurance from the private sector. And the cash amount in the bank would then allow not just access to a surety, but fair pricing. So when Indigenous contractors went to bid either on the monetization projects or RFPs in general with Canada, they would be able to have fair pricing, which make their RFPs much more competitive. The second offshoot of that would be FNFA is not just about low loans. It's about economic growth. It's about wealth management. But you can imagine the benefits if you were a youth looking at a field of construction or anything involved in infrastructure that would also allow you to plot a course for your own employment going forward. So the model we're proposing is respectful it ties into the UNDRIP, it ties into governance by Indigenous contractors, and it ties into Canada supplying a bit of money that would then allow fair pricing of surety bonds going forward, which means RFP competitors would be assured going forward. Fantastic. There's a lot, there's certainly a lot of work to do, you know, within our communities. And if we, this has really been like an onion, because once you start to look at these types of things, you start to peel back the multiple layers of policy that prohibits economic development. And, you know, I really like what Christian Sinclair, he calls it economic sanctions. 
to our communities because really that's that's what's happening. And there's an opportunity cost when our contractors cannot participate in this type of industry. And we know that with the amount of construction that needs to happen in our communities right across Canada, that this presents significant opportunity. And it's an opportunity that we don't want to see passed up and we will continuously advocate for. Um, Tim, any closing comments or recommendations or something that you guys would like to see? Yeah, and I could just, just to follow up on Steve's point, he, he did mention not only working in your community, but outside your community. So the, the example I was sharing is that one of our projects is we're building the National Center for Indigenous Law, which is an expansion of the uh, University of Victoria. And there's a lot of Indigenous engagement from the architect. So we thought it would only make sense to engage the communities. And we we reached out to a number of communities and it was um, a KDC, which is owned by Cowichan Tribes, who, and they were awarded a $2 million contract. The hardest part was getting the bonding. So we were creative and we basically just doubled the hold back. And that, what that did is it kind of shared the risk. And, but I, I like Steve's idea. I think we need a national uh, mandate where the, the playing field is leveled. I know that from back in my banking days, the governments had Aboriginal loan guarantee programs for the development of green energy, so wind and solar in Ontario. And they, it was capped, but it was well utilized and it allowed a lot of communities to access that that kind of risk that uh, the company, it's shared risk basically. So it allowed the nations to access that shared risk, which means the bank were, the risk for the banks was covered or for the creditors. So I, I think a program like that I love the idea with FNFA uh, implementing something like this because it's also Indigenous owned and it's Indigenous led and it's Indigenous governed. And I think that's, if you want to talk about um, nation building and, and, and seeking our own sovereignty, it's fair to say that Indigenous people have been left out of the economy for a while. But I think we're starting since the TRC and, and we're starting to see a lot of very positive movements. And I think the more opportunity we give to our communities and our nations and organizations like FNFA to to help our communities so they're indigenous uh, led and indigenous owned i think that's i think we're on the right track we just have a ways to go still thank you tim i i really appreciate that and really recognize and acknowledge the reconciliation action that's being done on part of shando's construction i think that's fabulous and um, miigwetch for the you know the consistent advocation and I look forward to seeing this finished building. I, I'm sure yeah. it's going to look absolutely stunning and beautiful and yeah, love the Indigenous participation component. Steve. Jody, I think if you go into any Indigenous community and ask what the most successful programs are, you would probably get a same answer. And that would be the programs that are led by Indigenous people because they understand the needs of their communities. There is a strong strong argument to be made that if you are going to close the infrastructure gap, if you are going to allow economic participation by Indigenous contractors, then it has to be a program or an authority that is owned and governed by Indigenous contractors because they will make the right decisions for their communities. The current approach, which probably looks at RFPs and chooses the lowest bidder, ends up with infrastructure that's probably subpar. And that is, I'm sure, a large component of the $349.2 billion because it does need to be remediated a certain number of years after it is built. 
if you build a model that is indigenous controlled and governed and policied, you will probably end up with better infrastructure that lasts a longer period of time and actually will help to close the gap. So the current model doesn't work. We have to have a different model and indigenous input and governance has to be part of it. Thank you, Steve. And thanks for joining us today, Tim. It's been a pleasure as always. Hope to see you soon. Steve, Good thank way. you for, for your input and your insight. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jody. To our listeners, miigwetch for listening. And again, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to learn more, please subscribe, share it with others on your social media posts. Please leave us a review or a rating. Also, if you want to learn more about surety and bonding, please contact the FNFA and ask to learn more about uh, your part and how you can participate or support this initiative. Miigwetch, everyone. <laughs>